turn towards uh, God's word. Uh, Mark 2, 23 is where we're going to start and we'll move through uh, the first part of Mark uh, chapter 3. And uh, really continuing in the sermon series in the book of Mark, who is this Jesus? And we'll answer that question uh, yet again here this morning. Uh, But really where we find ourselves in the text this morning is uh, in this series of controversies and conflicts that Jesus had with the religious leaders. And it's so crucial, so important for us to see uh, the big picture uh, with respect to the scriptures. And so, uh, for example, if I, were to, <laughs> if I were to ask you, hey, in real estate, they, they tell you there's three keys to real estate. Anyone know what they are? Oh, yeah. Location, location, location. Guess what? Those are, the, those are three keys to studying the scriptures. It's the same thing. All right, location, location, location. It's context. And it's so crucial, so crucial that we understand the context of God's Word. We understand the immediate context, what's happening in the text that we're looking at, what's happening here, especially in the last chapter. We see these, these controversies or these conflicts. Jesus uh, telling the guy that he forgave him of his sin. Jesus calling a tax collector to be one of his uh, disciples. Jesus and his disciples not fasting. And then we're going to see two scenes here this morning that deal with the concept or the idea of Sabbath. Right, in the intermediate sense, in the book of Mark, one of the things that Mark is driving us towards, the context, is understanding that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. That he is in fact the Savior. When you think about the broad context of the whole of the scriptures, uh, the entirety of the Bible is about God's story of redemption. So we we have to see any part of the text in light of both the immediate and intermediate and and broad context of the scriptures. Because it it would be dangerous of us, it would maybe even be wrong of us, to come to the text this morning and go, well, you know what, y'all need to take a Sabbath and uh, let's talk about that for the next 40 minutes. Because while the issue is around the concept of Sabbath, Mark's pressing a whole lot more than just the lawfulness of what we can and can't do on the Sabbath. And uh, so really all of those senses of context, both immediate, intermediate, and broad, are going to inform how we understand the text here this morning. Uh, Let's just begin to read God's word and uh, allow God to unfold his word in a way that only he can into our hearts and minds. And uh, because Lynn's prayed for us, we'll just uh, proceed moving forward. But why don't you read with me? I'm going to start in verse 23. I encourage you to follow along. Uh, Here's what God's word tells us. It says, One Sabbath, he, speaking of Jesus, was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. So they're kind of walking on the edge of this field, and they're pulling off heads of grain, uh, peeling off the, the husk or the shell, and they're eating them. Okay, that's what's going on. And then notice, verse 24, the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Yeah, they probably are hungry, Rachel, I agree. Okay? He said to them, Have you never read what David did? Now keep in mind who he's speaking to here. Of course they had read what David had did. I mean, it's probably offensive that he even would suggest such a thing. Not only did he say that, but he went ahead and tells him the story. When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. 
They're probably like, what's your point, man? What are you after? What are you trying to tell us? Here's what I'm trying to tell you. Look at verse 27. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then he tells us this as well. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And Mark moves from that scene to this next scene. It's possible that they happened one right after the other. It could have been months or even years that these two scenes uh, happened apart from each other. We don't know. But Mark intentionally puts them together. We do know that. Look at the beginning of chapter 3. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. Check this out. So that they might accuse him. It's all they're after. We want to bust this guy. So he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And then he said to them, so right, calls the guy up in the midst of all of them. I kind of like to think that maybe Jesus put his arm around him, right? And then looks to all the religious leaders and says this, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent and didn't say a thing. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. <laughs> this, I mean, this is mind-boggling that this would be their response, but notice their response. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Title the message this morning is the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of my life. And really each of these scenes beginning to instruct and, and, and inform and, and give us understanding with respect to answering this question. And so let's just look at each of these scenes here uh, for the remainder of our time. We'll tie them together briefly at the end. Uh, but notice this, first of all, the, from uh, 2.23 through the end of the chapter, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And again, we find ourselves, much like last week, looking at two scenes uh, that, that Mark ties together, and they're, they're going to reveal some of his emphasis. But unlike last week, it's pretty easy to see how these two are tied together. Now you see the concept of Sabbath. You see this idea, is it lawful? Is it not lawful? I mean, that word shows up over and over again uh, in these two scenes. And what the conflict centers around is that idea of Sabbath and lawfulness. But Mark's emphasis is much, much bigger than whether or not you and I are supposed to rest one day out of the week. In fact, I would suggest to you what Mark is driving the reader to here starts with this idea of understanding the divine authority that rests in Jesus Right, think about what this whole point of the first half of the book. Jesus is the Messiah. That's what he's driving his readers toward. Now you can't be the Lord of anything, much less the Sabbath, if you're just Joe Blow over here. You've got to be someone important to be the guy who's over that. And so part of this is understanding the divine authority that's found in Jesus, but I think it leads us to, at least on a much more on a practical or applicable level, when we start thinking in our own lives, it leads us to this emphasis that we would embrace Jesus' concern for people and not for rituals. Are you tracking with me on this? I think what Mark is driving his reader towards here is the heart of Christ that centers around, I love people. Jesus didn't die for rituals. He didn't die for duties or tasks or obligations. He died for people, you and me. The beings created in his image 
and that our heart would be for them in the same way that his heart is for us. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Let's just press into this first scene a little bit further. And really, in verses 23 through 26, Mark kind of sets the scene, um, and, and then really the, the, the culmination is found in verse 27 and 28, uh, two prominent conclusions. One really tells us some things about ourselves; The other really tells us some things about God. And so notice in verse 27, let's start with one of the conclusions, and then we'll walk back through to arrive there. But the Sabbath is for man. The Sabbath is for you and I. It exists for us. God created it for you and me. That's its purpose. The Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. If you go back up to verse 23, right, on a particular Sabbath day, they're going through the grain fields. They're plucking grains of head, and the Pharisees, look at what they say in verse 24. Why? Why are they doing what is not lawful? Okay, well, what was it that was not lawful about what they were doing? There's a number of possibilities. Um, one is that, uh, that there were certain regulations that religious leaders had put on how far you could walk on a Sabbath. And so it's possible that the Pharisees are going, hey, you know what? <laughs> You're only supposed to walk to the temple and back, and uh, y'all have way exceeded that. Okay, there's one problem with that as a possibility. The Pharisees would have been guilty of that as well. Okay? And uh, Jesus would have been like, what are you talking about? You guys are out here. Be quiet. That would have been the end of the argument, right? So it's, it's most likely not that. Uh, some people suggest that maybe, maybe the disciples are actually stealing. In our Western 21st century mindset, we, we would think of that like, yeah, man, if you're on my property taking my grain, you're stealing. Except that the Old Testament law taught that anyone who owned any fields were to leave the, the, the edges of the field um, unharvested or unplowed, and, and, and those who were poor or passing through could glean from the edges. Further, I find it really, really difficult that Jesus would in any way, shape, or form say, yeah, you know, theft is okay, okay? Uh, he's not going to violate any of his standards. I don't think it's that. Here's what I think they're bent out of shape about, and this will become really prominent as we move through this. I think they're mad because they see the disciples working, so they're, they're harvesting, right? And it's like, I'm, I'm plucking and peeling and eating. It's the work of harvest. You can't work. You can't work on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to work on What's wrong with these guys? And of course, Jesus' response, don't you love how so often he just responds with a question? Like, like the religious leaders or whoever's like, hey, I want you to answer this. And he's like, nope, watch this. We're going to go this way. Because I want to get at your heart. I want to get at the real issue. I want, to, I want to get at what's going on inside of you. So he doesn't really answer their question directly, but he does put a question in front of them. Have you never read what David did? And can't, can't you just see them in that moment, like the religious pride welling up? Yes, we have. We know what he did. When he was in need and was hungry and those who were with him. And then he references this account from 1 Samuel 21 when David's on the run from Saul. And, and at Nob, and he goes in to the high priest there, and he's like, hey, you got anything to eat? And he goes, we don't have anything. In fact, the only thing they had were these 12 loaves of, of, of the bread of presence. And the bread of presence were 12 loaves that, that every Sabbath, new loaves would be put out, and then the old ones would be taken off, and the priests were free to eat it. In fact, Jesus even says that. It's not lawful for any but the priest to eat. So Jesus even concedes, hey, what David and his guy did were in violation of Sabbath regulation or of temple regulation. They were supposed to do that. But see, he moves through this story, and you get to the end of verse 26, and you're going, okay, well, what's your point? What, what, what is it that you're after? Well, here it is. 
The Sabbath was made for man, not the man for Sabbath. He's driving home the, 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 the bigger point. This day is for you. You don't exist for this day. Now you have to understand a couple of things about the Sabbath. Because the first time we see the Sabbath in the scripture shows up in Genesis 2. Anytime you see something in Genesis 1 and 2 is a pretty good chance um, that it's applicable to you and I. That's before the fall. Okay, Everything that you see in Genesis 1 and 2 is good. That's how God chose to describe and define it. It's before the fall. In fact, it's the seventh day of creation. Now, I'm willing to bet uh, that this is not how the seventh day unfolded when it happened. God, whew, I'm tired. I need a break. I got it. Day off every seventh day. That'll work. I can guarantee you there's 0% chance that's how it went down. Nothing wears him out. He doesn't get tired. He's not fatigued. He's modeling something for us. He's showing us something. And in fact, so not only do we see it in creation, we see it again in Exodus 20. You want to know what, what's going on in Exodus 20? Anybody? Ten Commandments, right? Yeah, it's kind of an important part of the scriptures. And um, do any of the commandments happen to say anything about the Sabbath? I was meaning to check on that this week. Anyone look that up? Right? Okay, yes. The fourth commandment tells us you're to work six days on the seventh day, you're to Sabbath. And then Moses does something pretty interesting. He runs right back to Genesis 2 and ties it to that. See, he appeals to creation and to the created order. And so, so sometimes, right, sometimes the mistake that we make is we go, right, but like we're not under the law anymore and we're free from that. We're always under what we see in Genesis 1 and 2. That was God's perfect intent and design from the beginning. Further, I mean, it's ludicrous to think, well, yeah, you know, those generations in the past, they, they needed a break. We don't need a break. That's just insanity. And so the Sabbath is for man. Sabbath in its purest form is that you and I would cease from work. We would cease from the work that we typically do. That we step away from, from whatever it is that would typically employ our time during the week. Now, now it doesn't mean that we cease from all work. In fact, Romans 14 also gives us clarity that it's not tied to a particular day. Sundays are kind of a busy day for me. Friday is my Sabbath. I don't do anything. I don't. At least not with respect to my job. But it does, ne does not necessarily mean that, okay, you can't leave the couch um, or you can only come to church and then you got to be in your bed. That's not necessarily what he's after. But it's that we cease from the work that we typically do. The Sabbath is for man. Now let me just, two things here that I think verse 27 maybe speaks to us on um, that are important for us. One, one is that you and I would in fact take a Sabbath. Hear me, look at me, hear me loved ones when I say this. You need a Sabbath. You do. Because you are not some special superhuman that God created different from every other person that's walked the face of the earth. You should take a Sabbath. I should take a Sabbath. We should all take a Sabbath. You're not above needing it. In fact, I, I think there's this toxic blend of arrogance and foolishness in the thinking that somehow you and I are immune to needing rest. You're suggesting that you're different from all other creation. 
That's a prerogative and right you simply don't have. We need to Sabbath. If there's ever been a society that needs it, it's us. To step away from all the junk and garbage that fills our life and be like, you know what? I need to step away from that and rest. There's a fascinating thing historically with respect to the Sabbath. I think maybe the greatest human example of this. In the late 1700s, um, the French Revolution was this revolution where the, the French decided we're going to eliminate all religious thinking and constructs from our society. And so one of the things that they did was, you know what, the seven-day week, that's a religious thing. We're going to get rid of that. Let's do a ten-day week. And they changed their calendar. They changed their clocks. I mean, they changed everything. But there are two things that I find absolutely fascinating about this. One, you know what they did on the tenth day? It was a day off. See, like you, you can't escape the fact that you and I have to rest. Here's the other fascinating thing. It didn't last very long because it wasn't sustainable. And they saw this great decline in production and thinking and all these different things. See, you and I were designed, it's kind of brilliant, right, that every seven days we're supposed to take a rest. You almost think someone did that on purpose. It's mind-boggling, right? See, we need a Sabbath. You need a break. You need a rest. Don't fool yourself. Take a Sabbath. Secondly, I'll say this briefly. We're going to get to this further here in a moment in chapter 3, but I want you to hear it right here because I think it's here as well, that God is more concerned with people than rituals. God is more concerned with people than rituals. He's after our hearts. He's not after our tasks. He's not after what you and I can do. He's after who we are. That's what he's after. That's what he's fired up about. That's what he's excited about. The Sabbath was made for man. Okay, It serves us. We do not serve it. And then notice this secondly, just briefly, before I move on to the beginning of chapter 3, that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. So in verse 27, it tells us a little bit about ourselves, that the Sabbath was made for us. We should take it. It, it speaks to, to the, the image of God and, and some of that identity that we find in ourselves. But in verse 28, this is telling us a little bit about uh, who God is, who Jesus is. The Son of Man is the Lord, even of the Sabbath. Jesus is the Lord of even the Sabbath. Now, we've already talked about the fact that it was instituted and created by God. And so for him to say, hey, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, I mean, you understand what he's implying here, right? I'm the guy that made that. I'm the guy that's over that. In fact, it was common in the Old Testament for uh, the nation of Israel to refer to God as the Lord of the Sabbath. So it's kind of like before Abraham was, I am. He's making one of these divine claims here. That, that, that God, that's me. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm over what God's over. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now notice this secondly here as we move to chapter 3 and, and really kind of fills out this first scene as well. Because I think what Mark does is he takes the concept at the end of chapter 2 with respect to the Sabbath and Jesus being the Lord of that. And he, he, he's going to take it, but he's going to push it much more firmly, much more intentionally, and much more purposefully into our lives. Because it's one thing, loved ones, to intellectually go, yep, Jesus is the Lord. He's God. I got it. Okay, we're supposed to Sabbath, take a day off, check, whatever. But it's a whole different realm we start talking about, yeah, that guy's the Lord of my life. He controls and dictates and demands everything within me. And so notice two things here with respect to this. Um, right? This idea, it's not just 
that Jesus is God, but that he's going to change my heart. He's going to change my mind and what's going on inside of me. And if you look at verses 1 through 4, here, here's the first thing we see. Is we see a confrontation of our rituals. We see a confrontation of our rituals. And so again, here, let's just remind ourselves what's going on. Jesus enters the synagogue. Maybe it's the same day. Next week, three weeks. Could be two years down the road. We don't know. But he comes in. There's a man with a withered hand. Now, I find it interesting the way that Mark writes this is he identifies Jesus comes in, here's a guy who needs help, and they go right to verse 2, and they watch Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. See, what, what Mark has implied is they know that he has the power to heal this man, and he knows that he has the empathy and compassion to care for this man. They've taken two things that should have told them an awful lot about who Jesus was and actually used it against him in an attempt to accuse him of like, well, you're not supposed to do this. Of course, Jesus, aware of all these things, he says to the man with the withered hand, come here. Now, now I'll suggest to you that what we see in verses 1 through 6 is more about Jesus' conflict with the religious leaders than it is about him healing this man. This man is simply a means to something bigger. Now, pretty sweet deal for that guy. I mean, he got healed, uh, and, you know, he just had to be the means. But it is not primarily about him. It's about Jesus and the religious leaders and this issue of rituals in our hearts. So in verse 4, Jesus poses this question, is it lawful? I mean, think about this. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? What's better? What's better, to uphold this ritual at the expense of caring for others? To save someone or to allow them to die. Like, well, what's better here? I think there's an irony. There's this great irony with the religious leaders and where they stand and what they've identified in Jesus. And listen, listen, listen. Yet they miss God Himself because they're so fixated on their rituals. They could not see God who was literally in their presence because they were so fixated on their rules. I think we need to hear that same warning this morning. That you and I would not miss God himself right in front of us because we're so fixated on rules and duties and obligations. See, it'd be easy for us to hammer these guys. What a bunch of fools. Yet if we're honest with ourselves, I mean, we do the same thing today. We do. We take rituals, we take religious obligations, we take duties, and we allow them to supersede the person of Jesus in our life. In fact, here's a handful of ways there's a handful of ways that we miss Jesus in holding to our rituals. And as we move through these, I would just ask you to maybe do a couple of things in your own life. One is just ask yourself, between yourself and the Lord, first of all, is this true in my life? As these things come up um, with respect to uh, my life, are these things true in my life? If they are, repent. Change, turn from sin, turn back towards the person of Jesus. If they're not, praise God that that's the case. And be warned that you and I could so easily slip right into this. Five ways we miss Jesus in holding our, our rituals. Here's the first. Uh, we work for or serve God 
but our heart is far from him. We work for, we serve God, but our heart is, is far from him. It, it's this idea that, that this notion, that this thinking that God's approval of me shows up, is manifested in, in what I do for him, not in his finished work that was accomplished at the cross for me. That I can somehow earn God's love. If I try harder, if I do more, if I'm better, simply put, this is checklist spirituality. I read my Bible, I prayed. I'd let him be like, I fasted this week. That's like extra credit bonus material, man. That's awesome. I gave, I shared the gospel. It's, I'm doing the things, checking it off the list. And my heart couldn't be any further from God. As if God's impressed by that. God's actually, he's repulsed by that. Remember the Laodicean church in Revelation 3? I mean, I can't think of anything worse than getting spit out by God. And he's like, man, I, I would rather that you were cold. I'd rather you reject me than do this lukewarm garbage. Get out of here! That's his response. That's what it is when we do this. That God will love me for what I do. Not because he loves me and in response to that I serve him. We work for or serve God but our heart is far from him. Here's secondly. Uh, we, we're willing to confess sin but we never truly repent of sin. I can say it. I don't care honestly. I, I don't care if you can say it and I know God doesn't care if you can say it. Doesn't mean a darn thing to him if you say it if you don't mean it, right? When we can confess sin, but we never truly repent, it's, it's like I can appease God with my words and assume that my actions mean nothing. I mean, I watch this unfold in my home every week. We have four young kids uh, who are anything but perfect, and uh, so it's discipline is common in our home. Hey, you have something you want to say? Sorry. Just a parent, you're like, no, you're not. Um, okay, for what? For being disobedient. They're not sorry. They're not sorry in the sense of repentance. They're sorry that they got caught. They're sorry that they're exposed. They're sorry that they're being punished. But listen to me. They are not broken about their sin. And yet, how often do you and I do the same thing? I'm sorry that I got caught. I'm sorry that I'm exposed. I'm sorry that it's revealed. I'm sorry that I'm being punished. I'm sorry that there's consequences. But I'm not broken about the sin because I'm going to run right back to it later today. I'm not repentant. I'm not, God, change me. Oh, God, like, hurry up and forgive me, man. God's disgusted by this. We confess our sin, but we never truly repent. And God help us. God help us that that would not be the reality of our lives. How about this one? Number three, we compartmentalize our faith. We compartmentalize our faith. Here's, here's what I mean by that. Remember like those old school ice trays? Right? Like, like it's, it's ice cube tray Christianity. And, and I do my Christian thing in one. And I don't know about you, but like in my house growing up, like no one would ever fill those up. That's the most annoying thing in the world. Who wants one ice cube? Like fill the darn thing up, right? 
Okay, but you've got like one ice cube and the rest are blank, but you get the idea, right? The compartments here. I got my Christian compartment. I got my, maybe my marriage compartment, my family compartment, my job compartment, my hobby compartment, my uh, fitness compartment, my financial compartment. And it's this idea that they're all separate from each other. That they're all isolated each other. I do my Christian thing, but that never intersects what happens at work. And I do my Christian thing, but that doesn't impact my marriage. That's a disaster waiting to happen. I do my Christian thing, but uh, that's completely divorced from my finances. And I do my Christian thing, but that doesn't ever touch fitness in my life. It's this compartmentalized thing. Jesus, you can have this thing right here. None of this other stuff is for you. Except that's never what he speaks about in the Gospels. He doesn't say like, hey, kind of suffer to yourself. <laughs> Occasionally give some things up. For, no, he says, die to yourself. Hey, pick up your cross. That'd be like saying, pick up a guillotine. Pick up a noose. The cultural implications are somewhat lost on us because, you know, we wear crosses on necklaces and t-shirts and um, bracelets and things like that. And so it becomes this decorative piece. Uh, we put it in our house and we wear on ourselves, and it's like you, you wouldn't wear a noose. You wouldn't do that. Because it's highly offensive. That's the whole point. It's telling us to die to ourselves. And this compartmentalization of our faith. We don't have Christian versions of ourselves and then like the sports version or the a business version or the fan. No, no. He wants all of you. It's comprehensive. And we hold to these rituals and, and this right here, what's going on right now? Maybe for some of the people in this room right now, you're playing into that very thing. I am doing my Sunday morning Christian thing. Boom. And I'm going to roll out the doors, and I'm going to leave that little tray, and I'll come back to it next Sunday morning. But for the rest of the week, for the 166 and a half hours out there, completely unfazed by it. You have a compartmental faith, which begs the question, do you really have a faith? Okay? Compartmentalize our faith. Fourthly, we elevate a particular aspect of worship or ministry above the overall mission of God. We elevate a particular aspect of worship or ministry above the overall mission of God. We have like our little pet thing. And it's like, it has to be this way, this method, this style, this brand, this thing. And if it's not that, it's like not really of Jesus. Here's a few ways, few of them. I mean, we can talk about 500 different ways that we do this, but here's some of the more prominent ones. Worship music. If you sing that style, then you're blank. Okay, the scriptures are really, really clear. Jesus is fired up about worship. It doesn't say anything anywhere what kind of genre or style he likes. He likes the style that gets at your heart. Okay? Um, certain ministries in the church... You have to have this. Can we just be honest that everything, everything has a life cycle? And that, that everything has a time where it's like, you know, we're, we're better served to put that to rest. Everything has a life cycle. And yet sometimes we hold to these particular things like, it has to be this. I'm not trying to pick on anyone in here with this next one. Uh, this is just an example, but the whole idea of King James Version only. I mean, this, this is one of the ways, well, if you don't read out of that Bible, you're not really reading the Bible. And yet it blows my mind sometimes. I'm like, you know, in the last few hundred years since we wrote that, we've actually found better transcripts. Like, we can actually do better work. 
Why are we so fixated on that? But see, the, the, these are three of hundreds of things that we could talk about. We have these, I mean, they're sacred cows is what they really are. Honestly. They're sacred cows. And I had a seminary professor, and, and like one of his favorite phrases was, uh, he would always say, um, sacred cow makes gourmet burger. And uh, it's the whole idea of put those things to death. Listen, loved ones, Jesus is sacred. The methodologies in which we move towards him is not. Now, God's word gives us some very specific things that uh, will ultimately move us back to the person of God that we're not really free to abandon. Things like the inerrancy of God's word, the nature of the atonement that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone, the, the doctrine of heaven and hell, the trinity, the humanity and deity of Jesus, the doctrine of sin, things like that. We, we, we don't get to walk away from those things. Okay, so that, please don't hear me say, hey, you know, just, it's just about Jesus and nothing else. No, no, there's things that God very clearly instructs us on. But when we depart from the place where we start putting methods or personal preferences of things in this category, we've missed the person of Jesus and his intent. So just ask yourself right here this morning, is there anything, is there anything in my life that I've made more important than Jesus makes it? That might be a clue. Is there anything in my life that I've made more important than Jesus himself makes it? Um, is, is there anything that I'm so fixated on that I actually miss the person of Christ? Right, we elevate a particular aspect of worship or ministry above the overall mission of God. Here's the final one. This is kind of a, uh, the other side of the continuum and we swing away from uh, all these rules and rituals to the idea that we just don't have any at all. And it's the idea that, uh, that we believe that we're the exception to God's rules. There are no rules, there are no standards, I'm not held to anything. My sin is a little bit less heinous. I'm a little bit more palatable to God. It's a little bit easier for him to come to me than it is to the rest of you. No, it's not. Right, we believe that we're the exception to God's rules and that we're free from any of that stuff. And that's not it either. Over here, we do the legalism thing. This swings us over to license. I'll just do what I want. God's equally disgusted by that. And in the same way that Jesus is confronting the rituals of their day, I think that he wants to confront the rituals in ours. Because if not, we run the risk of missing God himself and replacing it with rules and rituals. And God help us, man. God help us that that would not be the case, that that would not be true in our lives. So then notice this secondly, verse 4, 5, and 6. I just wrote this down. A heart to follow Jesus or ritual. So he confronts the rituals. Now he's going to really get at our heart. And honestly, there's a real harshness to this exchange, uh, at least I believe, between Jesus and the religious leaders. And we really have to see it as that. Um, and there's a sharp contrast in the response. And I think it's quite insightful and quite um, eye-opening. <clears throat> look at the question. Verse 4, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? And I think in that question, I think in that question, Jesus wants to move them to this place where they're concerned not only for God's law. We need to be concerned with God's law. We're not, we're not going to abandon God's law. We're not going to say, hey, you know, we don't have to listen anymore. No, no. It's there for a reason. But we're concerned not only with God's law, but we have an equal concern for the people who live under that law with you and I. Because what's unmistakably clear is that Jesus cares for this guy, but the religious leaders have no care whatsoever for this individual. He's a pawn 
to their scheme. And in reality, what they had done is they had divorced their heart from the law. They had divorced their heart from doing the things that God had called them to. Cold heart, lots of action, disgusted uh, is really where God stands on that. See, God's law doesn't solely tell us how to live. Really, it instructs us with respect to the people that we share our life with. Because throughout the scriptures, what God makes unmistakably clear is his desire, first and foremost, for our heart and how that intersects both with those around us horizontally and, of course, how we interact with God vertically. Maybe, maybe the clearest example in all the scriptures is, uh, remember 1 Samuel 15? God tells Saul, you're going to go in and you're going to destroy these people and, and I want you to destroy everything and Saul gets in and they take over and then some pretty nice sheep. Some pretty good loot. Maybe there's a way that we could spiritually justify keeping this. And so then Samuel shows up and write his line. What's, what's this bleeding of the sheep that I hear? Which should have been so penetrating to Saul at that point and that he begins to spiritually rationalize, spiritually justify. We're going to use this for God and use this to gag. It's like so gross and disgusting and Samuel's response is this. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? I don't care about your sacrifices. I want your heart. That's what he's saying. I'd much rather that you would have just done what I told you to do. That would have been way better. In fact, he goes on. He says, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. He flat out says it. It's better this way. Think of Isaiah 58. And the people of Israel are, I mean, they're angry with God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we bowed our head and you take no notice of it? God's response. Look at what you're doing. You fast only to quarrel and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours will not make your voice to be heard this day, says the Lord. And then God says, is not this the fast that I choose? And he starts talking about, I want a heart that's after me. I want a heart that's been gripped and grabbed by me. That's where he moves with that. God's intent from the very beginning, love wants us to get at your heart and my heart. He wants our heart to be transformed. He's not interested in our behavior being modified. At least not first. He wants your heart. He wants your heart to be transformed. And Jesus puts this question in that moment. <laughs> that was the moment for them. That it could have happened, you know. Yeah, he actually brings up a good point probably would be better to do good than to harm. It'd definitely be better to save a life than to kill it. And of course, I think part of that killing a life is in reference to their desire to kill Jesus. But look at what it says. They, pin drop, nothing. And so Jesus, look at his response in verse five. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. I mean, no doubt. No doubt, but they're silent. And they're silent, I believe, not because they didn't know the right answer, but because of their hardness of heart. See, at that point, they didn't care about the right answer. They cared about doing things their own way. 
They were more interested in doing it their way instead of responding to what God was telling them to do, even though God himself was standing right in front of them. Now just ask yourself right now, do I have a heart to follow Jesus? And all that comes with that, or do I want to do it my own way? God, here's how I will follow you. That's a recipe for a nightmare and a possible lightning strike, okay? I mean, can you not see how backwards and arrogant that is? Oh God, here's the conditions and terms in which I'm willing to follow you. And God's like, I got bad news for you, buddy. Because it doesn't work like that. Not even close. Is our heart to follow Jesus or to follow rituals? Let me just, a couple of notes here real quick that I want to point out. Verse 5, he looked at them with anger. Sometimes people are like, wait, how can Jesus be angry? I thought anger was a sin. Well, Ephesians 4 tells us that you can be angry and do not sin. The implication that there is particular anger um, that is not sinful. And I think that actually uh, Mark 3 is quite instructive for that. He looked at them with anger. What's that next word? Tell me. Grieved. Grieved at the hardness of their heart. Here's the deal. If you want to appeal to righteous anger at any point in your life, here's one of the qualifications. There should be grief over sin. If you find yourself um, really angry about something and going, no, no, it's righteous anger, then doggone it, there better be a brokenness over sin and the implication of sin in that situation. Because if you are angry and there is not a grief and a brokenness over sin, you are not righteously angry. You are just angry, which means you are in sin. Tracking with me? You've got to be broken about that. And so Jesus had every right to be angry, but inasmuch as he was angry, he was broken. Because here again, another opportunity for these individuals to turn, to see, to recognize, and yet the hardness of their heart. So Jesus heals the man. Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Now, not, not only did Jesus give him the chance and they're silent, here another chance. You would think, I mean, at that particular moment, I would like to think that even if I was in that place, hardness of heart where you would see that and go, okay, maybe we should reconsider for a minute what's going on. That's pretty incredible. Can we just, can we talk for a minute? They don't even do that. Look what they do. The Pharisees went out and immediately... It's like, stretch out your hand. All right, let's go. And and out they go. And let's go get the Herodians. And and let's start finding a way to get rid of this guy. Can you see the irony here? Just a few verses ago, they're bent out of shape. Because Jesus' disciples are walking through the field, working to put some grain in their mouth. And now, here they are, Working, scheming, plotting. Jesus wanted to feed and to heal. These guys are working and they want to kill. They missed God. He's right in front of them. And see, loved ones, this is the danger of following rituals and duties and not the person of God. 
is that it moves you and I to the place where, you, where we come, come, come to a place or a position where we might be willing to justify just about anything, even though it's blatantly sinful and wrong. And in the process, we miss the person of God who's right in front of us. It's crazy. I mean, multiple points where they could have said, you know what, you're right. And yet so hard, so calloused. And they missed it. Because they were bent out of shape about the Sabbath. And you can't do that! Let's just try to tie these together here for a moment. Because in the purest sense of the word here, these two accounts are really, I mean, they're about the Sabbath, but it's much larger than that. I think it's quite reflective of our hearts. Is my heart, just ask yourself, is my heart for rules, for rituals, for obligations, or is my heart for the person of Jesus Christ? What's it for? The text here requires that we examine the tendency that we make rituals so prominent in our lives and in the process we miss the person of God who's right in front of us. Loved ones, would you embrace the person of God? Would you simply embrace the person of God and walk in that? Let's pray. I'll tell you what, while you're... Eyes are closed, your head is bowed. Let's just take a moment, actually. Let the bluntness, let the force of Jesus' words sink in here. And maybe just between yourself and the Lord, maybe you need a moment to confess. God, forgive me for letting rituals and rules drive my life. God, forgive me that that I, I don't serve out of a love for you. I do it out of some duty or obligation. Maybe you need to beg God to renew your love of him. Maybe you need to recommit anew or recommit afresh your commitment to him. God, would you help me to follow you? Would you help me to pursue you? Maybe it's been days, maybe it's been weeks, maybe it's been months, maybe it's been years. God's right in front of you. But you can't even see him. Because you're so fixated on other things. So maybe in this moment it's time to just clear all that away, wipe it away, move it to the side. Just say, Jesus, help. Help me to see you. Help me to follow you. Help me to rightly orient these things with respect to you.